0: I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is Agents of Impact, our series of interviews with changemakers in and out of impact investing. Our belief
1: is that the results are better and the investment you're making the employees pays for itself. When you see employee turnover go down, absenteeism on a daily basis go down, and you see quality go up, productivity go up, scrap go down, you know, there's a connection there.
0: That's Pete Stavros, head of U.S. private equity for KKR, the 200000000000 billion-plus global investment firm. I spoke with Pete about KKR's strategy for worker ownership in the manufacturing sector. Let's jump right into our conversation. Hi, Pete. Hi, David. You are the co-head of private equity for uh, KKR in the United States. What does that involve?
1: As uh, co-head of private equity in in the U.S., I help uh, oversee our U.S. private equity business. We're on our 12th investment fund. Uh, which is about $14 billion uh, in size. We also have a, a core investment vehicle where we have longer-term uh, holds of, of companies. Think of about more like you know 10-plus year holds in more stable businesses that have really no risk of technology disruption. We also have some growth funds, like the healthcare uh, growth fund, which I also help
0: oversee. And Pete, I know KKR has also got the global impact fund of about a billion. Plus, that's not in your in your stable, right?
1: That's correct. That's overseen by two of my partners, Ken Melman and Robert and Tablin. It's a global uh, strategy, not just U.S. And that's an area we're really excited about and continue to build.
0: And you invest uh, in, in a, a range of companies. You take, I guess, a, a majority or control of them and help run them. What, are, what have you been investing in? So we invest across
1: industries, You know, industrials, TMT, consumer retail, financial institutions, et cetera. And generally speaking, our, our approach is to find businesses that we think have untapped potential, could be adding new growth factors to the company, operational improvement, uh,
0: consolidating an in industry, growth through acquisition, et cetera. And one of the areas that's, that's kind of interesting that we've been talking about is in, industrials or manufacturing. Um, that's It's considered a tough business, isn't it? And uh, kind of obviously had ups and downs in the US and, and elsewhere.
1: It, it can be a tough sector to invest in. It, you know, the sector is cyclical. It's capital intensive. There's not a lot of growth. You've got tough competition from Asia. But on the other hand, it, it can afford opportunity because the sector is still fragmented. And there's often a lot of operational improvement to be had and lots of levers to pull. You know, if you compare a manufacturing business with a software company, software companies got salespeople and engineers betting on a trend, betting on a product. And in, in manufacturing, you've got a lot of things to work with a supply chain that often is global in nature, lots of manufacturing plants, warehouses, logistics and distribution to deal with, usually selling through a distribution channel. So lots of things to improve and and optimize with a manufacturing business.
0: Well, well the thing that, that got you and I talking was your strategy on, on manufacturing businesses. A lot of these companies have been kind of you know picked over, I guess you'd say, by other private equity companies. You found a kind of interesting way to add value, even to companies that other private equity you know firms have have, have done their have done their thing on. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about it.
1: One of the things that we do that's unique is the way we engage with the employees of the manufacturing business. This is an effort we started about 10 years ago uh, in an effort to drive improved performance at the, at the companies we invest in and, and also, frankly, improve the lives of the employees at those companies. So if you look at a manufacturing business, sometimes as much as 80% of the workforce consists of hourly employees, and oftentimes that level of engagement among the hourly employees is, is low. So, you know, pay is low. They don't feel cared for. They don't buy into the mission of the company. Turnover is often, you know, reasonably high. And yet that cohort of the employee base is absolutely critical to the performance of, of a manufacturer because they make the product. They certainly impact things like quality and on time delivery, customer satisfaction. And so we saw a real disconnect, you know, that, and we saw an opportunity to change that dynamic and drive improved investment performance. And, and this approach we've got has three components. It's about. Investing in that hourly workforce, improving safety, providing functional training, giving workers more agency and decision making around things like where we make investments in the company, uh, engaging with the community. So we we find a charity that has a need for the products that the company makes, form a partnership with the charity, get the employees involved. It's about building pride in the organization, having people feel like the company really has a, a reason for being. And then the, I think the thing that we've gotten uh, really right is making everyone in the business and owner all the way down to the most junior levels of the organization. So we've done this now eight or nine times with industrial companies in the US covering over 20,000 employees. And we've seen that employee engagement improve at that hourly workforce level. Retention uh, goes up, You know, absenteeism goes down. And investment returns, you know, have been really strong. We've invested about $4 billion of equity capital across these investments over the past 10 years. And today it's, that's valued at well over 12 billion. Um, so we've, we've created a very nice gain and, and the employees have participated in that. Uh, in aggregate, I think we've delivered over half a billion dollars to our uh, employees, excluding management. Um, and so it's been very meaningful
0: at an individual uh, level. So sharing wealth with employees, forgive me if I'm wrong, but that's not generally been, I think, in the private equity playbook in a, in a, in a large way. How did you come to this strategy, personally?
1: Uh, the original idea started with my my dad. He was an hourly worker with a construction company in Chicago, and he used to talk all the time about lack of alignment on the job. And you know, when you're paid by the hour, as my dad used to say, the goal is to work steady. Not work too fast because you're going to have fewer hours. You're going to get the job done too quickly, but not so slow that you get in trouble. And, and that kind of thinking drove him nuts. And so he always advocated for profit sharing as a way to align incentives, um, because he didn't want to fight over how many hours he worked. He wanted to be paid on, you know, quality, cost, on time delivery, all the things that the company, uh, cares about. And so, you know, that kind of was an idea in my, in my mind. And I had uh, my, parents didn't go to college so I kind of wandered into this whole field um it's not like I uh, had charted a path to, to get here and when I wandered into the field the first thing I happened to do about 22 years ago was work on the sale of a company a uh, portfolio company of a private equity firm and during that process saw how life-changing the exit was to the people who participated in the equity um and so that that really I'd say and so this is a long time ago now but that reinforced the desire to try and do this at some point in my career.
0: So, but at that point, in in, in most of those exits, as you were explaining to me, the number of folks who were uh, in, involved in the ownership group was would be a, quite a small slice, no? Usually, it's 1% to 2% of employees participate in a private equity deal. So, the upper executives, but the, not the hourly workers that you're talking about. That's right. 1% one, one to 2% of the total, and it would be, be just this very senior executive. That's right and so the thought is if it's life changing to them it could also be life changing to the to the employees a, as well and as you said perhaps get the incentive lined up in a better way that's right and so just walk us through it because it, you know it's a you've now got a as you said a bunch of case studies under your belt and a, and a kind of a playbook i think to how it how it works but just take us through um, you know one of the examples i know you cited a few in, in some presentations i've seen but pick your favorite
1: uh, sure, I, hard to pick a favorite, but um, you know, if you take uh, Gardner Denver as an example, this is a, a public company that we took private in 2013. And when it was public, of the 6,000 or so employees, 86 of the 6,000 uh, were owners in, in the business, so it's in that same kind of one to two percent range uh, that you see in private equity. That's one of the One of the things that often confuses people ownership is just as concentrated in these public companies. There had been a lot of management turnover at Gardner Denver, some some strife between management and the board. There were some very messy plant closures, et cetera. And so, you know, we took the company private in 2013, and it was a pretty challenged business at the time. We developed an operational improvement program and then, you know, ran our playbook, as you said, you know, rolled out a broad based ownership program. So that all 6,000 employees could participate, we, um, we invested you know, heavily in, in the employees. We struck a partnership with a charity called Drop in the Bucket that drills fresh water wells in Africa using our compressors. Um, you know, did all the things I, I mentioned earlier, and over uh, you know a number of years, really dramatically improved uh, the business and took the company back public. But at the at the time we went back public. Now, all employees were owners. I think we had about 6,400 employees at that time. And the hourly employees had about $100 million of stock. It ended up being at the IPO, I think, about 40% of their annual salary. Now, the stock's up you know, 50% since the IPO, so it's more like 60-plus percent. And we just did a, um, a transaction with Ingersoll Rand. So the company is now known as Ingersoll Rand. And later this summer, as we've announced, we're going to be doing another $150 million stock brand. Uh, for the benefit of hourly employees, at the, for non-management uh, members of the company, um, so that's that would be one example. It's kind of the same playbook every time: broad-based ownership, really investing in the employee base, uh, and engaging with the uh, with the community in a way that's
0: meaningful. What does that kind of um, uh, wealth sharing actually mean for some of these hourly employees? Well, we've had
1: a number of exits now, and we've we've definitely had some heartwarming stories of you know people. You know, buying a, a new car or taking a, their family on a vacation, taking a honeymoon that they couldn't afford to take previously. I will say one of the things that we learned, which we've now incorporated into our model, is that we, in some instances, had not appropriately prepared an employee base for a large financial uh, payout. Now, I'm sure you've heard the statistics about the percentage of Americans who live paycheck to paycheck are in debt. You know, can't afford uh, as much as a as little as a four or five hundred dollar emergency. Well, a lot of those people work in the manufacturing world, and so when we produce uh, or or have a large payout in an in, uh, in investment, and those employees earn you know some number of thousands of dollars, uh, call it twenty thirty thousand dollars that they didn't see coming, and maybe those folks are in debt, and they and that yet they go out and and spend the money. Um, and there's one example that I'll, I'll never forget, which was we had paid at one of our companies multiple dividends. It'd been a home run of a deal, you know, dividend after dividend after dividend, which was extra income. And one of the guys in the manufacturing plant that I'd gotten to know came up to me and and told me he was about to lose his house because he couldn't pay his utility bill. And I was like, how could that possibly be the case with all of these dividends we paid? Not to mention all the overtime because the the plant's been so busy. And he said, well. I, I bought a truck you know with the first dividend I, I bought a second truck for my brother and um and then we took a vacation and all the while you know he had a, a stack of student loan debt and so as a result of those experiences we've now incorporated personal financial coaching into the model so we will um basically hire uh oftentimes we're working with an outside group like operation hope uh, led by a guy called john bryant mm-hmm. who will staff financial, Counselors and coaches at our manufacturing uh, plants and prepare people so that they understand, you know, how credit works, how debt works, how important it is to get out of debt, how to save, and then, you know, what to do with their money, you know, when there are these kinds of payouts. By the way, not to mention helping people access earned income tax credits and all that sort of thing. So lots of benefits to personal financial coaching and, you know, what people call financial literacy training. Um, and we've now really rolled that out across our industrials portfolio.
0: So just maybe walk through a little bit of the numbers. I mean, how do you do broad-based employee ownership? Are you giving, is it, you know, everybody is like a tech startup and gets options? That's right,
1: we, we use options. Um, so from our investors' perspective, they get diluted to the extent that there's real performance. We do not ask the most junior levels of the organization to make any kind of investment. Um, we do offer investment opportunity at more salaried levels of the workforce. Um, and and by the way, that distinction is just out of fear of, of people losing money that maybe they you know shouldn't be investing. And in, and these are highly levered transactions. So um that's the reason for the distinction there between salaried and hourly employees. But yeah, it's it's options, it's based on how much of a gain our investors receive and and the whole employee base gets a share of that.
0: And again, you you said the payout at the end might be forty percent of their annual salary but um you know they have to you have to have an exit or a sale at that point so is there is you know do folks actually you know feel this as kind of wealth creation on their part
1: yeah we do so when we pay dividends along the way the hourly employees would participate in that as well and i I should note you know we've far exceeded 40 percent in in some situations so it's not that just example i gave happened to be uh 40 percent but you know, we do a lot to make sure that people are feeling that wealth creation all along the way. Participating in dividends is one way, you know, we open up um stock accounts for everyone, even though the, the stock is often not publicly traded. But as our valuation mark improves internally, uh the, the valuation work we do for internal purposes for valuations, that gets fed into the system and people can see the value of their options um
0: increase over time as well as the value of their investment to the extent they made an investment. Okay, well let's just get to the heart of it. I mean, because a lot of times obviously, you know, there's a, a long history of, you know, labor management, you know, strife and, and conflict and folks often arguing for kind of more compensation or, or wealth creation for the employees, or implicitly arguing or explicitly arguing for less for the investors. I think you're trying to posit a kind of win-win for both employees and investors. That's
1: right. Our belief is that the results are better. And the investment you're making, the employees pays for itself. And so, as I as I mentioned earlier, you know when you see employee turnover go down, absenteeism on a daily basis go down, and you see quality go up, productivity go up, scrap go down, um, you know there's a connection there. You've got more tenured, seasoned people. They're turning over less frequently. They're on the job more consistently. They're more engaged on the job. We measure employee engagement at all of our companies. And you see that go up over time. Um, it's and, and it's not an overnight thing. This takes an enormous amount of effort, communication, education. It's a huge time commitment on the part of the management team. But if you really commit to it, you know, yes, you can you can drive
0: results, and all of this can pay for itself. I do believe that. Who's against it then? Is is management sometimes against it? Are your are your LPs sometimes against it? Your partners at KKR? I mean, who could be against it? Um, I do think there's a conventional wisdom out there that
1: ownership at lower levels of an organization does not make sense. They'll never understand it. It's going to be too confusing. It's too hard to communicate to so many people. It's too hard for people lower in the organization to feel like they can move the needle on the overall value of the company. So I, I do think actually conventional wisdom is against it. Um, that's why you, you don't see a lot of broad based ownership. I think if you've got the right Culture at the company, or you can build the right culture, and you've got the manager team that really wants to lean into this. And we've got a number of CEOs who are absolutely amazing at this. I think it, it absolutely, you know, can work. Now, it can't just be money. It's one of my friends, uh Dove Seidman, who, who wrote this awesome book called How. As, as he once said to me, you know, if, it, if it's just ownership, then it's just money. It's just compensation. That's why you need the community in, engagement. People feeling proud about the company, you need to make all these investments in the employees. I mean, you could give out ownership. One of the companies we we, you know, and this has happened twice now, I could say two companies we bought, the injury rate in the manufacturing plants was like three times the OSHA benchmark. So if you're demonstrating you don't care about the people and you roll out an ownership program, I don't think it's going to do very much. But I think all of this stuff taken together, investments in the people, engaging with the community, and having them participate financially. And then everything that goes with that last part, communicating business objectives, how we're doing, how we get to our goal, how what all the individuals do every day ties into that goal. I think all of that taken together can build culture and can build engagement and
0: commitment. And so you guys are getting value from the the, the, obviously the difference from where you bought it and when and when you sell it. Are you looking for kind of well-run companies with good safety records and high quality marks and kind of good management are you looking for the ones that you can come in and turn around on the, on those on those markers
1: it's a little bit more of the latter to be to be honest now we've invested in the former um, there's just fewer as i said levers under your control where you can really drive the performance you may there be betting more on a trend but yeah we love the situations where you've got you know a fundamentally good business so we're not looking for a broken company but a but a good company good market position Real reason for being that's not
0: you know fully optimized. That that is our wheelhouse. And sometimes the workers there might be, as you say, you know, you know, the business is good, but they may be unhappy or at least, uh, as you said, maybe not you know motivated as they might be, um, you know, especially after you know years probably of you know, uh, as you said, you know, conflict and strife.
1: Yeah, exactly. Look, I think it's worse in manufacturing than in many sectors, but that's the state of the American workplace. If you look at any of the Gallup surveys about how many people are not engaged on the job or or in fact the term they use actively disengaged which is like they're basically sabotaging the company that they work for. It the statistics are high, you know, the numbers are high. So it's oftentimes not hard to find a group of disaffected employees and if you can get everyone pointed in the right direction and harness that energy, yeah, I think you can I think you can really make a difference.
0: Now, as I understand it, this is really at this point still only in the manufacturing company. So does it is there is something that doesn't work in other areas? You know, you might think of re- retail or, or, or something else or is it really manufacturing only? I think
1: manufacturing has an inherent advantage in that there are so many uh, employees who are usually disaffected and yet critical to the business and if you can turn that it can have an impact. Um I you know, there, there are some other sectors you can do or, hitting on this um, point that are not as well suited to it. So take your example of Of retail. You know, the average rate rate of employee turnover for retailers over 100%. So if you get in there and you start talking about five-year plans and, you know, where where we're all going to be in five years and how you can participate, the majority of the workforce is already looking for their next job. Um, It's just such a transient workforce. Another example would be some uh, service industries. Uh, that's an, uh, that's kind of an interesting problem because often the challenge is there's so many employees relative to the value of the company that you just can't get enough equity um, to make it meaningful to people. So it, it works better when it's a mix of you know some capital in the business, so you're leveraging some technology and some you know equipment um, and manufacturing know-how with you know the the blood, sweat, and tears of of your uh, employee base. So it's it, it's it's the the mix that works the best because just the the numbers work out better uh, if you've got fifty thousand employees. Um, unless it's a it's a company worth an enormous amount of money, it just makes it hard hard to make the math work.
0: But it, but does the same logic in general uh, apply in the sense? Even in a retail business, there's arguments about the the good job strategies where um, fast food outlets that treat employees better, maybe even pay more, more opportunities for promotion and training and that sort of thing, um, have more loyal employees, but also more loyal customers. So you're applying this in other, the the general idea of sort of employee, um, uh, uh, upgrading the, the, the employment, uh, conditions. Are you applying that in other areas, even if not full broad ownership? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I am familiar
1: with the good job strategy. I think it makes a, a lot of sense. The ownership part of it is can be hard in some of those service industries, but absolutely across the portfolio, you know, we've got a big effort around uh, employee engagement. You know, what we do from an ESG perspective across the portfolio, you know, we're trying hard to improve diversity at our portfolio companies, not only at the board level, but throughout uh, the organization from the C-suite all the way down. Um, So all, all of those things. I agree, can make a difference. The ownership is it can be tougher, in a,
0: a larger base, very very large base of employees. What has been you, you mentioned the conventional wisdom? I mean, just separate from in the companies, in the investment, in the finance world. Um, you know, do you think that you've changed people's perception of the strategy such that it might become a larger part of of, of private equity and, and investing? More broadly, is there a bigger change coming society wide? Well, I don't know. Um, We're
1: experimenting with it in other industries, other business units, other geographies. You know, we're we're certainly trying it in some other areas. I've gotten maybe like a dozen calls from GPs who have questions about the model and how we do it and um, why we think it works. And I think some of those firms are maybe starting to experiment with it as well. Look, I definitely could see a benefit if this work is spread on a larger scale, not only in terms of investment returns, but in terms of what it could mean for the economy. Think about labor productivity uh, and what an engaged employee base could mean on a broader uh, scale. Uh, Income inequality is kind of an obvious one. Also racial equity. Um, You know, when you look at a manufacturing company and you look at the percentage of employees who are diverse, the diversity is better at lower levels of the organization, unfortunately, and getting equity into uh, that cohort of employees can, you know, mean a lot to, to people. Um, so, so yeah, I, if it were to spread and it would become more common to have everyone participating in ownership,
0: I think there'd be some society wide benefits for sure. What is the, um, the the conversation perhaps over thanksgiving dinner or what what have you when you're uh tell your uh your dad and your folks about what you're what you're trying to do now that you're a a a private equity guy (laughs) well my my parents love uh hearing about it my dad
1: i would say honestly is surprised that that this is not more common and that it's taken this long you know as i said he when he was working construction many decades ago um you know he's now in his 80s but he he thought this was right around the corner back then. As you know, there was a, a boom in in ESOP transactions thirty plus years ago when uh, Congress passed the the uh, RIS Act and, and instituted some tax incentives for people to have broad based employee ownership. Now that has that really only took hold uh, to a limited extent and was in smaller companies and has uh, stagnated and, and declined. So. Um, I'd say his biggest reaction is got him. I'm surprised it's just not happening more frequently.
0: So it's a, an idea. whose time is is always about to come. Um, well, thank you, Pete Stavros from KKR. This is uh, we, we we're watching this uh, strategy with with interest, and um, would love to be able to to stay in touch as you uh, as you get more examples and, and and roll it out more broadly. So thanks for being with us. That would be great. Thanks for having me, David. That's going to do it for this episode of Agents of Impact. You can read more about Pete Stavros and KKR at impactalpha.com. Subscribers to Impact Alpha receive our daily email brief, including deal flow, job postings, and original features, as well as full access to impactalpha.com, agents of impact conference calls, and much more. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Thanks again to Pete Stavros and to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. See you again soon.